This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today we have a very special guest, Rachel Bridwell, and we're going to be focusing on something that's really challenging for us in the ED. Hey, Britt, want to make this like any normal shift we have where we both ramble about pulmonary hypertension and the nurses stare at us weirdly? Cool. Me too. That's happened quite a few times in front of the nurses where we nerd out about something. But let's get to your case here. A 27-year-old male presented to the ED with six months of cough and dyspnea. He endures his recent bouts of hemoptysis. He has not traveled or been exposed to any high-risk areas for tuberculosis. He states he has had heart surgery as a baby, but cannot recall what that was. He additionally endorses his previous bouts of epistaxis, but none recently. On exam, his vitals are a heart rate of 105, blood pressure of 104 over 81, with a respiratory rate of 24, setting 90% on room air, with a temperature of 98.1 in freedom units. On pulmonary exam, he has increased work of breathing, though no wheezes, ronchi, or rails. He's tachycardic with a palpable S2 and a positive left parasternal heave, and he has no telangiectasias on skin exam. In case you haven't picked up on it, we're going to be talking about pulmonary hypertension. And Rachel, you had mentioned some things like hemoptysis, that palpable S2, and the parasternal heave. I'm probably going to relegate this to something that I'm not likely going to pick up in the ED. But let's get to pulmonary hypertension. How common is it, and what are the different types of this condition? As that weird resident who spends 88% of a shift looking for pulmonary hypertension, it's my Michelle Branch. (laughs) That's right. Pulmonary hypertension is everywhere to me. Defined by a mean pulmonary arterial pressure of greater than 25 millimeters of mercury by right heart cath or inferred by echocardiogram, pulmonary hypertension in the U.S. is most often caused by left-sided heart failure, affecting approximately 15 uh, to 60 million individuals worldwide, though through a variety of etiologies. The World Health Organization defined a classification system for pulmonary hypertension in order to better group it. In group one, we have pulmonary arterial hypertension, so idiopathic and connective tissue disorders. In group two, we have pulmonary hypertension from left-sided heart disease, whether this be systolic heart failure, diastolic heart failure, valvular dysfunction, or congenital heart diseases. Group 3 is comprised of pulmonary hypertension from chronic lung disease and or hypoxia. Group 4 is then comprised of what we call CTEP, or pulmonary hypertension from chronic venous thromboemboli. Group 5 is your grab bag of multifactorial etiologies and miscellaneous items, such as sarcoidosis or hematologic disorders. I probably won't be able to remember all these five types, but is there something that kind of links everything together, and what's the underlying pathophysiology of pulmonary hypertension? In the setting of pulmonary hypertension, physiologic derangements represent changes in pulmonary and systemic circulation, altering the pressures in each system. The pulmonary circulation is normally a low-resistance, low-pressure system composed of thin-walled vessels capable of accommodating huge swings in preload. In patients with chronic pulmonary hypertension, Pulmonary vascular resistance gradually increases with vascular remodeling of the pulmonary arteries involving vascular smooth muscle and endothelial cell proliferation, inflammation, and fibrosis. If remodeling occurs over a prolonged period of time, the RV is able to compensate. However, in the setting of RV dilation, tricuspid regurge then occurs. Beyond a specific point of RV distension, RV outflow decreases secondary to increase pulmonary pressures and impedance to RV outflow. This derangement sets into motion a vicious cascade of intraventricular dependence in which the bulging of the RV into the LV decreases LV filling and subsequently decreasing cardiac output. Cardiac output drops and end-organ perfusion suffers, further exacerbating the pathophysiology of the inherent underlying disease. 
This extreme physiology takes a major cardiac toll. High pulmonary system pressures and ventricular wall thickness reduce coronary artery perfusion. In a normal physiologic setting, the coronary arteries of the RV are perfused in both systole and diastole due to comparatively low wall RV tension. In pulmonary hypertension, as RV pressures increase, RV perfusion falls until pulmonary artery pressures exceed systemic pressures, generating RV ischemia. In this underperfused state, RV contractility declines, worsening RV overload. Please check out our post for the diagram of the pulmonary hypertension RV spiral of death. Yeah, and that spiral of death kind of encompasses everything about why pulmonary hypertension is so bad. But Rachel, how do these patients present in the ED? Pulmonary hypertension and its associative symptoms are unfortunately nonspecific. I know, this is tremendously helpful. Dyspnea is the most common presenting complaint, though patients also report fatigue, weakness, chest pain, and syncope, which can be insidious and progressive in nature and limit daily activities. Angina results from ischemic subendocardial injury from ventilation perfusion mismatch or compression of the uh, left main coronary artery by the pulmonary trunk. Syncope is also associated with poor prognosis, while hoarseness may occur due to compression of the recurrent laryngeal nerve by an enlarged pulmonary artery. In advanced disease, individuals frequently present with symptoms of right heart failure, such as ascites, peripheral edema, and hemoptysis. You're pretty much right on track there. I mean, everything sounds really nonspecific, but are there key aspects of the history that we should look for that can suggest pulmonary hypertension? In individuals without a previous diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, Initial history should include pulmonary hypertension risk factors such as congenital heart disease, left-sided heart disease, valvular disease, pulmonary disease, connective tissue disease, liver disease, blood dyscrasias, thyroid disorders, dialysis-dependent renal disease, malignancy, stimulant use, and family history of pulmonary hypertension. Emergency clinicians should also evaluate for underlying precipitants of right heart failure to include sepsis, unplanned withdrawal of meds, medication noncompliance, pregnancy, pneumonia, anemia, and arrhythmias. In patients diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, questions regarding current therapy and medication compliance are essential to guide treatment and specialty consultation. Therapeutic side effects of pulmonary hypertension medication should be considered diagnoses of exclusion. Those are some really great points, especially about looking for that underlying condition and asking about medication compliance. What about the exam here? Is there anything that suggests pulmonary hypertension? I will continue to be very unhelpful. Physical examination is unreliable for determining the presence of pulmonary hypertension in early disease stages. In advanced pulmonary hypertension, signs of right heart failure are commonly present, such as elevated jugular venous pressures, hepatojugular reflex, ascites, hepatomegaly, and peripheral edema. On auscultation, an increased pulmonic component of the second heart sound and RV gallop, murmur of tricuspid regurgitation may be present. In pulmonary hypertension patients, arrhythmias, including atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, and AVNRT are common. Patients with decompensated pulmonary hypertension frequently present with hypotension, displaying signs of systemic hypoperfusion, including diaphoresis, cool extremities, peripheral cyanosis, and tachycardia. Patients with a patent foramenal valley who suffer from pulmonary hypertension may exhibit signs or symptoms of left-to-right shunting, manifesting as systemic hypoxemia and cyanosis, not corrected by supplemental oxygen. Let's summarize what we have so far. So the presentation is pretty nonspecific, and the exam is also really nonspecific. We're going to be looking for those patients who are in distress. Maybe they'll have some signs of right-sided heart failure. Let's get to a little bit on what we can do in the ED. What will the ECG show? An ECG in pulmonary hypertension can show right axis deviation and right ventricular hypertrophy. In addition to tachyarrhythmias, as discussed, 
Right atrial enlargement and ST segment depression and T-wave inversions in precordial leads may show right heart strain. How about some other important studies that we need to obtain in the ED? In pulmonary hypertension patients, VBGs, BNP, and LAEs as well as troponin are useful. In chronic pulmonary hypertension patients, venous blood gas frequently demonstrates hypoxemia and a respiratory alkalosis. Brain natriuretic peptide measurements may be useful in narrowing the differential diagnosis of a patient presenting with dyspnea, though don't necessarily exclude other underlying conditions. Elevated troponin and liver function tests portend a poor prognosis. The degree of heart failure is reflected by elevations in AST, ALT, and total bilirubin, signifying congestive hepatopathy with a decreased cardiac index and increased central venous pressures. Okay, so we're going to be looking for some end organ injury. Maybe we'll have some liver enzyme elevation, maybe a troponin and BNP elevation. And when I think about imaging, these patients are going to have chest pain. They may have some shortness of breath. They're probably going to be getting a chest x-ray. What should we focus on in when we're looking at the chest x-ray? Chest x-ray can show dilated pulmonary arteries, peripheral pruning, and enlarged right atria and RV, while pleural effusions may reflect severe disease. While chest radiography demonstrates a high sensitivity of about 97% and specificity of 99% for detecting severe pulmonary hypertension, it does lack sufficient sensitivity for detecting mild pulmonary hypertension. How about ultrasound, which is obviously one of our favorite tools in the ED? This can't be a foam podcast if we don't discuss POCUS. In the setting of pulmonary hypertension, bedside echocardiography can show right side pressure overload with right atrial enlargement, RV dilation of an RV to LV greater than 1 to 1, increased free wall thickness, an end systolic flattening of the intraventricular septum, and interventricular dependence visualized as a D-shaped left ventricle and diastole. Ultrasound assessment of the IVC is very often misleading in pulmonary hypertension patients, especially in those with mitral regurg or aortic stenosis. This will reveal plethora, but may not necessarily reflect the intravascular volume of these patients. We've talked about x-ray, we've talked a little bit about ultrasound, but we've left out the darling of emergency medicine so far, and I'm talking about CT. What should we be looking for on CT that suggests pulmonary hypertension? CT plays an essential role in identifying potential etiologies for underlying pulmonary hypertension. A CT demonstrating right atrial enlargement, RV dilation, and a main pulmonary to ascending aorta diameter of greater than 1 is suggestive of pulmonary hypertension with a positive predictive value of 96%. On CT, the pulmonary trunk should be no larger than 2.8 centimeters at its bifurcation, and if it's greater than this, it suggests pulmonary hypertension with a sensitivity of up to 87% and a specificity of 89 to 100%. For individuals with group 4 pulmonary hypertension, so CTEP, CT angiography may reveal thrombi in the pulmonary vasculature and identify shunts contributing to the patient's presentation. In this patient population, Non-enhanced CT may reveal a mosaic pattern of variable attenuation in the lung parenchyma with evidence of irregular pulmonary perfusion due to chronic thromboemboli. Interstitial pulmonary abnormalities revealed by CT may point to an intrinsic lung disease as the etiology for this pulmonary hypertension. Up to this point, we've really been focusing on the evaluation, but what about management here? Is there anything that we need to watch out for or anything that we can do that can harm the patient? Unfortunately, applying usual management to various presentations of dyspnea can land you in a heap of trouble. The primary goal of the emergency clinician is the identification and then the treatment of these underlying etiologies of pulmonary hypertension or decompensating factors. 
In patients who present with unexpected discontinuation in oral or IV pulmonary hypertension meds, every possible effort should be made to contact their specialist to initiate ED treatment and prevent acute decompensation. While prostacyclins and endothelin receptor agonists and phosphodiesterase inhibitors may not be immediately available in the emergency department, initiating these therapies early in their course may help stave off clinical instability, though optimizing oxygenation and circulation should always take priority. In individuals with pulmonary hypertension, supplemental oxygen is indicated to maintain an oxygen saturation greater than 90%. Hypercapnia should be avoided as it results in further pulmonary vasoconstriction. Continuous non-invasive positive pressure ventilation may be considered, though fluid balance must be optimized prior to initiation to eliminate dangerous decreases in cardiac output. There are no current recommendations regarding the use of bilevel positive pressure ventilation in pulmonary hypertension patients given the paucity of data. High-flow nasal cannula represents an alternative therapy which may improve hypoxemia, especially if patients are unable to tolerate the mask utilized for non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Rachel, you had earlier mentioned a bunch of different dysrhythmias. Can you provide us with some more detail? And if we find one of these dysrhythmias, what should we do about it? New onset AFib or A-flutter are common in pulmonary hypertension patients. In the absence of randomized control trials, observational studies suggest improved mortality with a rhythm control strategy. Rate control with calcium channel blockers or beta blockers is not currently advised, as these medications may further impair RV function. In particular, beta blockers should be avoided as they may result in systemic hypotension through negative inotropic and chronotropic effects. Although digoxin may slow the ventricular rate in patients with SVTs associated with RV dysfunction, cardioversion is the preferred therapy for pulmonary hypertension patients, given this population's propensity for digoxin toxicity. Electrical cardioversion is favored as the prolonged atrial arrhythmias in pulmonary hypertension patients are associated with rapid decompensation. Pharmacologic cardioversion with class 3 agents such as amiodarone and sodalol have been reported. In individuals with atrial arrhythmias lasting greater than 48 hours, anticoagulation is advised prior to cardioversion. I love it. Break out the electricity. We really haven't talked too much about the airway in intubating these patients, but what's wrong with intubating these patients up front if they're in respiratory distress? Brit, pretty much everything. Intubation should be avoided if possible, as the effect of sedatives and positive intrathoracic pressure may reduce preload, cardiac function, and cause peripheral vasodilation, resulting in hypotension and cardiovascular collapse. If intubation is absolutely required, Atomidate is recommended for induction, given its limited effects on cardiac contractility and vascular tone. Hemodynamic optimization prior to intubation is key, and if not possible, get vasopressors on board before a definitive airway is attempted. Awake intubation with topical anesthetics is an alternative that should be considered, given the reduced risk of hemodynamic decompensation as compared to RSI. Medications administered during RSI will likely result in a profound hemodynamic collapse, hypercarbia, hypoxemia, and acidosis making this a very physiologically challenging intubation. Ventilator settings should target 6 to 8 mils per kilo of ideal body weight and plateau pressure is less than 30 centimeters of water. Low PEEP should be utilized in order to minimize decreases in preload and increases in RV afterload. As the mantra of uh, pulmonary hypertension goes, hypoxemia and hypercapnia should be avoided. In the majority of cases, these patients will have a degree of fluid overload. IV diuretics should be used cautiously to obtain a negative fluid balance, optimizing circulating blood volume, and reducing RV preload, thus improving cardiac output. For patients not currently previously receiving oral diuretics, an initial dose of 20 to 40 IV furosemide is recommended for hypervolemia. In individuals utilizing home diuretic therapy, the initial IV dose should be at least the equivalent of their oral dose, though if resistant to intravenous diuretics, 
consultation for ultrafiltration may be required. In hypovolemic patients, volume administration should be delivered conservatively, with boluses of 250 cc's over 15 to 30 minutes. Okay, so avoid intubation if possible, and if they're hypovolemic, we're going to give them a little bit of fluid, hypervolemic, give them some diuretics. But what happens if they're still hypotensive? Is there a vasopressor that we should reach for? And please tell me it's more love for norepi here. Britt, I'm in fact exactly a one-trick pony, and I have some love for norepi, but I also have a lot of love for vaso too. In the setting of hemodynamic instability, vasopressors should be initiated as they increase aortic root pressures, increasing RV perfusion. Norepi is an effective first-line vasopressor for these patients. Although primarily an alpha-1 more than beta-1 target, norepi in uh, heart failure patients have demonstrated improved RV myocardial oxygen delivery following administration, though this is a low dose at 0.01 to 0.03 milligrams per kilogram per minute IV. In addition, low-dose vaso from 0.01 to 0.03 is another great option as it decreases pulmonary vascular resistance while increasing systemic blood pressures, proving uniquely beneficial in this action. However, growing greater than 0.08 international units per minute results in pulmonary and coronary vasoconstriction and should be avoided. The jury's out on epi, which provides systemic vascular support with inotropy, though may increase myocardial oxygen demand. To date, there have been no trials regarding epi in adult pulmonary hypertension patients. Sole alpha stimulation from phenylephrine should be avoided in unstable pulmonary hypertension patients, as it increases pulmonary vascular resistance and may induce reflex bradycardia. Dopamine should be avoided since it's after 1993, and given its beta-2 mediated decreases in systemic vascular resistance, it may induce possible arrhythmias. It's great to hear. More norepi, maybe some vaso. But what about actual pulmonary hypertension medications? What can we do here? There are several therapeutic options for patients with pulmonary hypertension. Although sildenafil reduces RV afterload through pulmonary and systemic vasodilation, I would hesitate to use it in critically ill patients in the ED given their risk of hypotension. Inhaled nitroglycerin presents an option for pulmonary vasodilation with a medication that actually lives in the ED. Some recommended dosing thus far has been 2.5 to 5 mics per kilo per minute, or roughly 5 milligrams over 15 minutes in an adult. What about those with a prostacycline agonist pump? These patients are going to be a little bit more complicated. What do we need to be looking for in terms of these patients? Very bad things can occur if a patient that has been prescribed IV epiprostanol and the IV catheter is removed or damaged because the pump stops working. A pulmonary hypertension specialist should be consulted emergently, and if possible, the pump should not be turned off, as this may result in sudden death. If there is a problem with the line, pump or cassette, peripheral access should be obtained and the pump tubing connected directly to this access. This line should not be primed or flush as a bolus of prostacycline agonist may be delivered to the patient, which may result in fatal hypotension, which is also bad. The patient's catheter should be inspected for drainage or surrounding cellulitis, which suggests infection. In summary, contact the specialist as fast as possible and do not stop or bolus the pump. We've been kind of skirting around the edge here, but we really haven't talked about a pulmonary hypertension crisis. What do we need to target here? And can you walk me through step-by-step, what should we do in the ED? These are patients that are in extremis and often require change of scrubs both before and after management. Patients with pulmonary hypertension may present unstable from an acute illness, for example, sepsis, or become unstable after intervention, such as intubation. A regimented approach to managing the patient with pulmonary hypertension who becomes unstable can prevent the deadly cycle of cardiovascular collapse. Let's walk you through step by step. Step 1. Correct the hypoxemia with nasal cannula or high-flow nasal cannula. 
Avoid non-invasive positive pressure ventilation as these patients are extremely preload sensitive. Avoid intubation at all costs. These patients are the prototypical physiologically challenging intubation. Get any inhaled vasodilator on board, even if it's just oxygen. Step two, don't make any hypotension worse. Give judicious 250cc boluses. As we've stated, point-of-care ultrasound of the IVC assessments have very little utility in these patients. Consider a norepinephrine drip or vasopressin drip. Step three, if your patient is in a dysrhythmia, it's very important to terminate this. Cardioversion is ideal, and then rhythm control over rate control. I sound borderline Canadian with this suggestion, but with a monster in hand, I feel my freedom has returned. Step four, correct the patient's hypercapnia and acidemia. They worsen pulmonary hypertension and are tolerated as well as Kevin from the office tolerates broccoli. Step five, consider inotropic support if point-of-care ultrasound demonstrates reduced ejection fraction. Dobutamine would be your first choice at a low dose, but pursue this only after optimizing steps one through four. Milrinone has been shown to be a great option as well, but I'm likely to find a Blakemore tube before pharmacy will mix and send my Milrinone. Step six, restart any pulmonary hypertension meds that this patient was previously on. Step seven, get this patient to an ICU, please. Consider ECMO early and call your team or nearest referral center if you do not have this capability in-house. Patients with pulmonary hypertension have a high risk of sudden cardiac death and poor outcomes. Cardiopulmonary resuscitations in patients with pulmonary hypertension with RV failure are poor. In a cohort of 3,130 pulmonary hypertension patients who required CPR, only 6% survived more than 90 days. Rachel, I love that list of seven, and we'll make sure to have this list in the show notes. The last thing that we really haven't touched on yet is disposition. Obviously, for those patients who are in crisis, they're going to need the ICU. But what about our other patients with pulmonary hypertension? If this is a new onset pulmonary hypertension patient, then they should be admitted. Additionally, if this is a known pulmonary hypertension patient who is worsening or decompensated or has a pump malfunction with prostacyclin agonist that is contributing to their ED presentation, admission and consultation with their specialty team are warranted. These patients benefit from a formal transthoracic echo, and they can characterize RV size and function, as well as measure pulmonary artery systolic pressures and tricuspid jet. That was a lot of information. Let me see if I can summarize that here. But before we do, I think for the norepinephrine, it's micrograms per kilogram per minute, not the milligrams per kilogram per minute. So for our summary, pulmonary hypertension can present with a myriad of chief complaints. We need to determine what's triggering the acute decompensation in the ED. Look closely for elevations in troponin and liver function tests. These portray a poor prognosis. POCUS can help us guide the acute resuscitation. However, be careful when looking at the IVC. This doesn't reflect the true intravascular volume. Avoid hypoxemia and hypercarbia and maintain right ventricular preload support. Avoid intubating these patients if at all possible. Instead, reach for high-flow nasal cannula. Restart pulmonary hypertension medications if they've been discontinued. Finally, most of these patients will need to be admitted. Rachel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You stay classy, San Diego. She will really read anything off the teleprompter. Thanks for listening, and stay safe and healthy, everyone.